Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and today I'm delighted to be joined again by author and former F1 commercial director, Brian Sims. Hello, Brian. Yeah, hi, Richard. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for popping back into the shed, Brian, because after talking to you about your book last time you came on, uh, the book called You Don't Have to Be a Champion to Be a Winner, I was desperate to get you back on because we kind of glossed over a lot of topics and then I was like, no, I, I want more of a, a deep dive into the 90s F1 that you were involved in. Yeah, well, one of the problems of getting older, uh, there aren't many benefits to it, but you do have a few stories and anecdotes to tell, that's for sure. Uh, it's fair to say that as a driver and as a commercial director, you're not necessarily a household name. But would you mind reminding the listeners of your involvement in F1? Yes, I started really in Formula One when I became manager of the Grand Prix circuit in South Africa, which many people will remember, Kyle Army. And um, that was uh, thanks to our friend, Mr. Max Mosley, who helped me get that job when I moved to South Africa in 1980. My first Grand Prix was um, remembered by the fact there was a driver's strike led by none other than Nicky Lauda, which is a wonderful way to impress your new sponsors for the Grand Prix to tell them that the race might not be taking place. I moved on then in uh, from Formula One to back to my own driving career. And then a call came through from uh, England to invite me to become the commercial director for the new Lola Formula One team. And that was in 1991. And that's where my Formula One career was resurrected. And I moved back from South Africa to England to take up that role with an old sparring partner of mine on the track, Mike Blanchet, who was a well-known Formula Ford driver and now the CEO of Lola. Now, I might be ordinarily tempted to say, well, let's gloss over the whole Lola Mastercard thing. Instead, 
I want to do the opposite of that, Brian. I, I want to find out what really happened there. But first, I want to tell our listeners that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Brian, Lola Mastercard. Is it it's fair to say that that wasn't the most successful Formula One team in F1? I mean, starting an F1 team is hard. Well, first of all, let's clear up one thing. Uh, I wasn't there when the last Lola Mastercard deal was done because that was done um, around about 1995, and I left in 94. Um, when I was there, we entered into a joint venture program with Dolara and their Formula, uh, Formula One program. But just very quickly on the Mastercard, I do know quite a lot about it, uh, and it was a classic case, a case study of how to get it wrong by having the level of expectations between the team and the sponsor totally wrong. Okay, so publicly, the owners of Lola before... Right, let's get our season straight here. They eventually ended up coming in in 1997. Is that right? I think it was about that. I think you're right there. Um, it was. It, they came on board um, through a guy... I think his name was Brett Trafford, who was the commercial director... And in principle, it was a very, very exciting deal. I mean, to bring MasterCard into the program, Formula One was, was great. The problem was that there was a misunderstanding, I guess is the simplest way of saying it, because it was a program that had a, a structure where the uh, Lola expected MasterCard to be putting the money up front, and it was quite a few million pounds they were talking about. MasterCard were under the impression that the money would be coming as subscriptions to their card services came in related to the deal. And, of course, we got to the first race of the season, and Lola turned around to MasterCard and said, well, where's the money? And MasterCard said, well, you've got to get out there and earn it. And as people join MasterCard and join the Lola program within that uh, program, then the money will be fed through to you. Oh, right. That makes sense. Something I read earlier, which is that by the end of the season or by, well, by the end of the stunted season, uh, Lola had built up something like six million pounds worth of debt. Now, I'm not expecting you to confirm figures, but did they end up having to basically borrow the money they thought they were going to get from MasterCard? I, I guess so. I wasn't there at the time, so I'm, I'm not going to really comment too much on that. It would be unfair to do so. What I do know is that it had a big impact on Formula One and MasterCard found themselves in quite a tricky situation. And I was by now working as an agent for Benetton Formula One on their motor racing program. And we had a phone call from MasterCard inviting us and a few other Formula One teams to the Portman Hotel in London and to present how we could help them get out of the hole that they were in. And that's putting it bluntly. And we all put our presentations together. And Eddie Jordan was the lucky guy who said, give me a couple of million and I'll get you out of the hole. And that's what happened. So when you said about the, the mismatch in expectations about uh, where and when the money would be delivered, there was also this sort of almost insane confidence from the team, team owners as well. I, d I don't know if you knew those guys, but they were coming out before Australia adamant that they were title contenders. Well, I did know them very well. I knew Eric Broadley. And I mean, Eric Broadley was one of the most talented designers um, in international motorsport. He was on a par with Colin Chapman. And 
I think it's fair to say that he probably wasn't the most commercial of people. He wasn't as commercial as Colin. Um, but this, the whole program really turned into a nightmare. And I remember they employed a young lady from America to come and be the account manager for the MasterCard account. And uh, she went to one race and then lost her job because the whole program folded after just two Grand Prix. And those two Grand Prix, they didn't even go well. I think in both races, they failed to come within the 107% rule. Uh, is it right that they didn't even do any wind tunnel? So I, I don't know, what was the thinking, do you know, behind turning up on track in a un, completely untested car? Well, I, I think we have to go back a little bit to Lola's first attempt in Formula One, which is when I was there. And that was, well, that started, it was for the 93 season. So we started in 92. And what happened, Eric wanted, almost as a swan song, because he wasn't getting any younger at that stage, he wanted to run a successful Lola Formula One team. And we started to look at all the different options. We looked at drivers, and I remember sitting with Mark Blundell, and we were talking about Mark possibly coming on board as a driver in the early program. Then we got a phone call from an organization called uh, BMS Scuderia Italia Ferrari run by a man called Beppe Lucchini. Lucchini ran Lucchini Steel, the big Fiat steel suppliers. He was a Ferrari nut. He had a collection of fantastic Ferrari Formula One cars. And he contacted Lola and said, look, we've been running this Dallara in Formula One. What about a joint venture? You design the chassis. We'll bring a Ferrari engine contract with us. We'll run the team. Let's get into bed together that way. And I was involved very much with Eric Broadley and Mike Blanchet in the discussions that took place on that program. We chose Michele Alboreto and Luca Badoa as the two drivers. No way. And yes, indeed. And uh, I had a wonderful season traveling around the world with Michele. What a, what a great guy. One of the, you, you know, if he was alive, you would just love hearing his stories of driving for Ferrari. They were magic, absolutely magic. The problem was, the car came out of the box and didn't work. It was as simple as that. It had the one-year-old Ferrari engine program running with it, and the disaster carried on through the first season. And at the end of the season, the plug was pulled on that program. So the second time in with the MasterCard deal was coming off the back of a, a, a disaster anyway. So it was, it was very difficult times. And, of course, Lola gradually went into administration brought out by Martin Bahrain um, and ran for several years. But when it comes to Formula One, it wasn't their best time. So, I mean, Lola aren't, they weren't mugs, were they? They had developed other Formula One cars for other teams. They had been successful in other championships. Did F1 break them in a way? You know, what, what was the, the, the biggest difference in that era from stepping up into F1? You're absolutely right. Lola had always been a, a manufacturer. At that time, in 91, when I joined them, they were the largest race car manufacturer in the world in terms of turnover. They were selling 35 to 40 IndyCar chassis a year into America at a lot of money. They, I think at one stage, there was one Indy 500 where I think there was one car on the grid that wasn't a, a Lola. Lola really made a, a lot of money by making racing cars and selling them to teams. And in America, they were hugely successful. And I think there was one year, and don't ask me which year, but it was in the 90s, 
where I believe there was only one car on the grid that wasn't a Lola. That was one thing. To run a team is a very, very different story. And Eric Broadley, lovely man as he is, was not, in my opinion, hard enough, tough enough, um, selfish enough, egotistical enough to be a Formula One team boss. He was too nice. Um, Was there a level of naivety? Was there a level of underestimating the challenge because because they'd seen it from maybe their supply side that they went oh well we, we've supplied things in, in with a shortish lead time so you know we can do it ourselves and you know perhaps then that you know then they weren't lacking the the non-manufacturing side of f1 i'm completely guessing but you know was there an underestimation of the challenge i think there was and, and one of the difficulties is going into a joint venture program you had two different mindsets altogether. Bebby Lucchini, the man who ran Lucchini Steel, a typical Italian um, multi-millionaire steel magnate, you can call him. And he was tough as nails. Um, the, the season actually fell apart because on the one hand, you had Bacchetti Alboreto and the uh, Italians saying, this is a downforce problem. There's not enough downforce on the car. We're having problems. McKaylee would agree with that. Luca agreed with it. Eric and the guys at Lola at that time were saying, no, it's a mechanical grip problem. And the battle went on and it got to the point where it was almost more important to win the battle than it was to sort the car out. Uh, and I, can I tell you an amusing story that happened? At Please Donington? do. Yes. You remember the uh, famous race that Ed and Senna won in the wet at Donington? Yep. Well, Al- McKaylee was driving the Lola on that day, of course. And uh, he finished the race, uh, came right at the back of the field. And afterwards, we had dinner together. And he was telling me, he said, Brian, I wanted to pull the car into the pits on the second lap. It was understeering so badly. But I couldn't get the car around the hairpin properly to be able to get into the pits. Oh, no. So I had to finish the wretched race sitting in this understeering car because I couldn't get to the other side of the track out of that corner to go into the pit lane. That is that's incredible. It's fascinating to hear about like the internal uh, mechanical debate over overriding you know the actual bigger picture. So I mean, does that does that feel like there was there was no way around that, or did someone win in the end out of those? No, nobody won. The the, the thing fell apart effectively, um, and it was very very sad to see because Eric had this dream of succeeding in Formula One. He was very talented. He probably left it a little bit too late in his life. Um, and Mark Williams, who went on to become head of Formula One um, engineering at McLaren, was the designer on the car with Eric. And and there was even uh, difficulties there because Mark was a young, dynamic designer. He wanted to do certain things, and Eric would come in overnight and change the, uh, the drawings on the drawing board. <laughs> So, uh, it, so a shame in the end, and I think it does unfortunately go down in history as one of the the least successful Formula One projects. Uh, but uh, you know, you're you're focusing on the commercial side. You were already at Benetton at that time. W- was it kind of a poison chalice where they suddenly got their hands on this great high profile deal? And perhaps you know, if they hadn't have done that, if they hadn't have hooked up with MasterCard, if they'd have waited a year that it might have been somewhere or was there always, you know, was it always doomed? It's a very difficult question to ask, isn't it? Um, I know so many of the guys who work there, I I think they'd all agree that probably 
it would have been best to stick to what Lola were brilliant at, and that was designing and building race cars to sell. Brilliant, Brian. Uh, I'd, I'd love to move on then, if you don't mind, uh, to yeah, to your time at Benetton at Benetton F1. If you could, you were there, weren't you, when the team had changed over to its Italian racing license? So you were you, you were never there when Schumacher was at Benetton. No, Schumacher was there. His last season was um, 1995 when he won the title. He went to um, Ferrari in 96, of course. Um, I started off uh, head of motorsport for a big international sports agency. Um, So I was an agent, effectively, working on behalf of Benetton to do deals for them. Um, And we had John Alesi and Gerhard Berger. Michael had won the world title. They'd won the Constructors' world title. Everything had been fantastic. We had Ross Braun had been there, Flavio and, and the crowd. When I arrived, the the team was on an, an edge. It could have gone one of two ways. We had two extremely good drivers. Um, but, of course, 1997, which was my first full season with the team, was one in which we brought in some extraordinary sponsorship. But the car started to go backwards. So, so at that point, who was on board sponsor-wise, and are you taking sole credit for that? Well, when I started off, um, Mild 7, which was the tobacco company, uh, they were pumping in many, many millions into the team. Uh, Flavio Briatore was still there when I was first involved. Um, Gerhard Berger, Jean Alesi, as I was saying. Um, and the, the, the problem became very, very clear that the car wasn't working as well as it should have done. Now, when I came on, the, 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 the plea was, we need some big sponsors. Tobacco is going out very soon. Everybody realized that. Can you start bringing in? And um, within three months, I bought in a multi-million pound deal with Gillette, which pleased everybody, which was a, was a great deal. And then within six months, I bought a, another huge deal in with FedEx, the first time anyone had bought a parcels company into Formula One at that time. I'd, I'd love to hear it a little bit more. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, uh, hey, uh, Uncle Brian, tell us about the olden days. But I do remember as a young teen, it was all about tobacco advertising. Like, How big a blow was that to the sport when the legislation came in to ban tobacco advertising? It was very big in more ways than you would imagine. First of all, um, at the time, I remember Japan Tobacco, when I came on board, were pumping in something between 35 and $40 million a year. Into oh, my the goodness. Team. Wow. And all they wanted was brand awareness. They wanted to see the brand on television. Now, the trouble with that is most companies who want to come into Formula One with sponsorship for sponsorship purposes, their prime purpose is not brand awareness. It's selling more products, more services, and so forth. So one of the difficulties, and I remember this extremely well, I went off to America and bought in this huge deal with uh, FedEx, and I targeted all the parcel companies, and I had another deal on the table with DHL at exactly the same time, which was extraordinary. But they wanted something totally different out of Formula One. And I remember a conversation with David Richards, who had taken over from Flavio. Flavio had... uh, departed from the team, shall we say, and David Richards had come on board. And I got to, um, we got to the Nürburgring and FedEx were telling me that they were very unhappy with the way they were being looked after by Benetton in terms of the business uh, uh, 
potential that they were being offered. And I sat down with David Richards and said, look, the team, are, uh, basically FedEx are not happy. And I got the answer, well, they're more trouble than they're worth. And this was because the Formula One bosses were so used to dealing with tobacco where all they wanted was branding on the car. FedEx wanted a lot more than that, and that's what I was giving them through my sponsorship deal. I, I, just, I wouldn't mind just so, – sorry, sorry, Brian. I just, just when you say what they wanted more, you know, what they wanted like to be directly selling somehow their products and services through the team. Yeah, well, with sponsorship, uh, Richard, it's, it's very, very complex. I've never sold sponsorship that isn't bespoke. In other words, it has to deliver what the company wants. Now, tobacco companies wanted brand awareness. That's fantastic. FedEx wanted an increased share of the parcel delivery freight business that was out there in the Formula One marketplace. And I showed them how they could do that through a very, very uh, complex program. And of course, yes, it did take more work to deliver. But as I said to David Richards, you know, FedEx has the potential to become one of the biggest companies in Formula One, a title partner. Can I, I went over to America, to Memphis, and I was introduced to Fred Smith. Now, there's a, an imposing name, isn't it? Fred Smith was the owner of FedEx. He still owned 9%. He was the man who started FedEx. And his first words when the, um, the, the, the David Junfeld, the marketing director of FedEx, said, Brian, has just come over and we're going to do a deal with the Benetton Formula One team to be a major partner. And his first words, Fred Smith, what would it cost to buy the team? Oh, really? So it was just like... And yet here we had a, a Formula One boss saying they're more trouble than they're worth. Well, and that, to me, sums up the problem that you asked. Yes, tobacco went out, the money was very tempting and lovely, but it was the mindset that was created by tobacco and how easy it was that really caused the problems in Formula One. So tobacco just turned up with a bundle of cash, look after them in the ho- in the hospitality suite, and, and that was it. That was it, job done. Yeah, it, it really was more or less that. Um, and of course, the, all the teams were you know, covered with uh, car, uh, tobacco sponsorship, and it, and it spread into other sports. It wasn't just football. Um, uh, uh, snooker, motor racing as well. All these um, sports had it. Of course, there's some difficult sponsors in modern F1 as well. Uh, if you'd have been the commercial director of Haas, would you have looked at that rich energy deal and rubbed your hands with glee? Or, or would you have been you know, looking looking a bit more at that firm and going, oh, this might be a bit of trouble? It, it's very difficult. You know, there are always sponsorship deals on the table that you look at and you think there's something not quite right about that. Um, I, I was involved in a few that way. And you have to take a decision. You say, do I want to be the guy who tomorrow morning wakes up and finds that they've moved away from us and gone to another team and it's working very well? Or do we say, no, principles are more important? Um, there's no hard and fast rule on it, Richard. It's one of those things you take. That, that's what being in the business is all about. You take a gamble. Sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes it doesn't. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so let's get an insight from a, a commercial expert such as yourself, Brian. I understand you won't know the details of individual teams, but how important is it? This might sound like a stu- stupid question, but how important to uh, to an F1 team is it to have that big title sponsor? The two examples I'm thinking of for British teams of late are McLaren, who who just kept saying they were they were just about to get a title sponsor at any minute. Zach Brown came in as the commercial director or, or the the CEO, but with a very commercially minded background. And then you've got Williams, who are also struggling and very nearly jumped on the rich energy chain. Like, can a team survive without that big title sponsor now? It's easier now than it used to be. Um, I don't think there's quite as much reliance on sponsorship. Equally, I think the market, the world has changed so much. The world of business has changed. Um, and there's nothing better than putting up a, an announcement of a big sponsor. In fact, funnily enough, I posted on my Facebook today a video of one of the big Formula One launches we did at um, Benetton when I bought Marconi on board as a big sponsor. And the, the, the whole uh, launch process was so different in those days. We took the car uh, over to, uh, to Barcelona. We had a plinth made uh, that looked as if it was old concrete. We took it up to the National Art Museum, the big one that looks out over across the whole of Barcelona, where all the statues are around. It. And we made a car that was looked as if it had been made out of stone. We got all the world's press standing there, looking out with their cameras with this backdrop behind the stone Formula One car. And as they started getting ready, the plinth, the top of the plinth started turning. The stone car went underneath and the new car came out of this big concrete plinth onto um, the top. And oh, on purpose. It got into virtually every major newspaper in the world, that photograph. I'll have that to was be- the sort of thing we did as launches. Those days have gone. To, uh, it's very much online today. And I think sometimes that lack of big name sponsors 
they, they miss the excitement of it. It's something physical. It's something you can work with. And yeah, it, it, it's not the same in any way, shape or form as it used to be. It feels like in the olden days, you know, it was MasterCard Lola, whereas now it's Mercedes F1 team. And it's only if you want to be nerdy, you say Mercedes Patronus AMG F1 or whatever it is. Uh, it doesn't seem to quite have that same same uh, branding punch. Yeah. I, I actually feel quite strongly that um, part of the problem is Formula One has been left behind by a lot of other sports commercially. Uh, I lecture for the World Academy of Sports. So I've been working with people like the International Cricket Council, World Rugby, Bahrain Olympic Committee. And the nous that they have about commercial sponsorship, I think, has left Formula One in its wake. Formula One's very inward looking. And um, there are some great opportunities in, in the times we're living in for some really innovative sponsorships. Well, we don't like to have a no-blame culture here at Missed Apex Podcast. And In fact, hang on, my soundboard might explain it better. Whose fault is it? We tend to play a game called Whose Fault Is It? So who's to blame then for this change from you know, maybe being one of the leading sports as commercial people to this navel-gazing organisation that you perceive now? I'm putting words in your mouth. Uh, but w- what made that change? It's not just you leaving the sport, is it? No, it's not been far from it. it. It's, I think it's very much in the, um, it, it's part of the bigger picture. It's not just about sponsorship. I think one of Formula One's problems at the moment, and let's be honest, we know it does have some problems with viewing figures and so forth, is the fact that it is very inward looking and it has become very, very technological. Um, marketing was really a very side piece of it. And in the tobacco days, it was all too easy to have a marketing department of three or four people who would go out and find tobacco money. Today, going out and finding sponsorship, you've got to be innovative. You've got to understand that the needs of companies have changed dramatically. You've got to understand corporate social responsibility. You've got to understand the fact that companies are under huge pressures. And to be seen to go motor racing is not everybody's cup of tea. So it's a very complex picture. but. In America, IndyCar seems to have it far better. They seem more innovative and and far more aware of the sponsorship issues and really some very innovative programs over there. Yeah, it it is different, isn't it? The way that that sponsors interact instead of just handing you a load of money, you know, they might even, you know, have some kind of engagement. Like they might say, if you want a free print copy of The Economist, just text APEX to 78070 and they can directly track what effect their sponsorship has had but is it that the 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 advertisers you know it, it needs to be like a more tangible result uh, rather than this just kind of growing the brand well i get asked a lot i i do a lot of lecturing with young students at universities and have been over the last few years so i get a, a picture from them and i ask them the question i said look i'm an old man now i've been in the motor racing oh, business a long time i've done a lot of sponsorship for myself and across the board what do you think has really changed in the business world since I started off? And it's an easy question, of course. Internet, social media, all of the various things, computers, calculators, the whole lot. And I'd say, what hasn't changed in the business world in all those years? And they look at me as if I'm something the cat brought home. You know, everything's changed since you were in the business. I said, no, it hasn't, because the one primary need of a company to survive it has to sell more products or services. And if you can go to a company 
and talk about how motorsport can help them sell more products in a measurable way that would always gain far more interest in saying we can get you more brand awareness. And that's what I found. I'm still doing it today at the age of you know what. <laughs> do, do you know what, Brian? I'm opening my ears because, you know, I'm I'm just a, an ex-spanner monkey doing a program out of a shed. But yeah, instead of saying we can offer you exposure to this many thousand people, really what we want to be doing is saying uh, we think our audience loves uh, subscription beer services. Uh, therefore we can you know engage with you and you can benefit directly well go back to the first deal that i did that turned allowed me to turn professional as a race driver it was in in 1977 would you believe and it was with a company called soda stream oh yes remember soda stream very well yeah right this is has a story right up to brings it right up to date cool the deal i put together was based on the need for soda stream to be able to do a lot of product sampling around the country because the thing that was stopping people buying a soda stream machine and drinks was, oh, it probably doesn't taste as good as the real thing. So I set up a whole program in departmental stores with the car on display. Little mum walks in with little Timothy. They see a racing car in there. Timothy sits in the racing car, has his photograph taken. While they're doing that, the sales girl from SodaStream is giving mother a chance to try the drinks and the kid a chance and, and so forth. And I put that deal together and it worked extremely well. Really? Move forward to the Young British Racing Drivers um, Rising Stars and Superstars program that the VRDC run. Uh, for the last uh, four years, I was running training courses for them. And one of the fathers in the course said, Brian, do you think I could stand up and talk to the young guys for a minute? I didn't know what was coming. And he said, I've been watching a few of you. And because the photographs Brian showed of the case study of SodaStream were in black and white photographs, you all switched off. He said, I'll tell you now, if you went to SodaStream with that deal today and the way that Brian presented it then, there would still be an interest. How do I know? Because I'm a director of SodaStream. <laughs> And I tell you some things, Richard, you should have seen these young guys' faces. Their chins dropped. They really did. And sadly, two months later, I rang him. I said, how many of those kids came and approached SodaStream? He said, not one. Which meant that it went in one ear and out the other. Apathy <laughs> or whatever it is, I don't know. But it, it, it is all about that. It's finding what companies need to sell products and delivering it. And at the moment, we've got a tough business world out there. We all know the reasons why. In many ways, this couldn't be a better, much better time to go and sell sponsorship. Because if you can show a company how they can sell more products in a positive way, they'll listen. Now, Brian, I, I realize I've suddenly gone incredibly selfish because I've got a commercial expert on. I'm suddenly going, oh, Brian, help me uh, make money so I don't have to go back to engineering again. Uh, however, I do want to mention that you also put this all fantastically in book form. So if you want to seek some of Brian's knowledge, uh, how's how's the, the book going and the book tours? It's called no, You Don't Have to Be a Champion have... to Be a Winner. That's correct. Uh, you're, you're going... I, I don't know how it's going because for six months I won't get the figures. Oh, but right. I do know that I'm getting a huge amount of social media um, interest in it. Uh, and what is so fantastic for me, so many old friends and names from the past in motorsport have contacted me and said, Brian, I've just read your book and it's brought back so many memories. 
and that's from South Africa, from Australia, from from my time when I was out there in America with Lola and Nigel Mansell. So, oh, right, okay, right, okay. Well, I was going to say let's wrap this up, but you've you've mentioned my absolute hero now, uh, Nigel Mansell. Tell me your best friends, and that he's waiting around the corner. He's going to come to come speak to us in the shed. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I first met Nigel at Alton Park in 1975 when we were racing Formula Fords. I won't say together because he was quicker than me even then. On the same but, track. Uh, I mean, it was an in- incredible time. Derek Warwick, Derek Daly, all these young drivers were there together. And Nigel stood out as somebody very determined. Um, and then I was very lucky when Lola, I was with Lola that year, um, due to the illness of our CEO. I had to spend quite a lot of time in America on the IndyCar circuit as their representative over there, working with Carl Haas, Paul Newman, and the Andrettis. And, of course, that's who M- Nigel went over to drive for. Um, and I had the, um, the, the amazing fortune to be at Milwaukee when he won his first oval uh, on the Milwaukee Mile, which was extraordinary. To see three abreast, 160 miles an hour around this Indy circuit with Nigel in there, beating the locals on their own home ground was extraordinary. Uh, he, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, that it's the olden days and it was less competitive. But when he, he did it across, you know, different, completely different series, there's no denying the bloke is a genuine motorsport legend. Like he, that's an overused word, but he is a full on legend. I'm curious to know what he was like in that period. I've been told that nowadays, He's very kind of amenable. He's very friendly. We'll spend time with people at events, very down to earth. But what about when he was in his pump? I was there for his first Formula One race in, in South Africa. He was with Lotus and he phoned me and invited me to go and have dinner with Razan and himself at the Kyle Army Ranch Hotel. Colin Chapman was sitting at the next table and Nigel said to me, Brian, he said, you're manager of the track here. You also race here. I want to know everything about this track, everything, because he said, one day I'm going to become world champion. Thanks to that man sitting at the next table who gave me a chance. I don't care what it takes, but I'm going to get there. And I knew he meant it. It wasn't it, all the young drivers today are going to be Formula One champions. Nigel really meant it, whatever it took. So first of all, there's the, the determination. I think he had a big disadvantage. And that was his Birmingham accent. Now, I love West Midland accents. I have, don't have a problem with it. But oh, a lot no. of people do. <laughs> a lot of people do. And I think had Nigel had a Brazilian accent, he would have had a far bigger following. Um, he gave everything. Uh, I think he was one of the most underrated Formula One drivers that there's been. Nobody today is in the same league in terms of overtaking abilities as Nigel. Um, and in America, he was just amazing. He was great with the crowd, the people, and everything else. Unfortunately, he also had a very thin skin, and he people could rub him up the wrong way very, very quickly. Prost. And being a West Midlander, he didn't pussyfoot. He told them <laughs> to their face what he thought. Oh, I've seen interviews with him talking about Prost, and there's no kind of there's no soft padding of it. He is like no bad guy, boo, and he's really like super honest. Yeah, and and that doesn't go down well in, in the realms of Formula One. I actually talk about Formula One, uh, what it was like to work in it, and and it really comes to the same thing. Um, Formula One is a very strange world. There are some 
very passionate people in it who are there because they love the racing and that's what their life is. There are a lot of other people there who I guess are the same sort of people that hang around Hollywood superstars and all this sort of thing. And Nigel had no time for that. And um, he focused on what he was good at, and that was race driving. And yes, he could be at times a bit of a prat out of the car, I think. Uh, Patrick had called him. But he said, <laughs> put Nigel out there on the test day, and you knew that you got 105% every time he got in that car. And do you know him in, in modern times? Because I hear he's a, somewhat of a close-up magician now. I believe so. I haven't seen Nigel for a long time. Last time I came into contact, he um, uh, was very decent and gave Liz and myself uh, a weekend at Woodbury Park Golf Club and Tennis Club that he had down in Exeter for our wedding anniversary on the house, which was uh, rather nice. But I haven't really seen him since, sadly, because... Um, Roseanne's also lovely. They're a fantastic team. And that was something one or two of the other drivers couldn't understand, um, you know, bringing a wife to a race and so forth. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Good luck on your book tour. Are you, are you enjoying the things where like people come up and do you sign things for people? Yes, I did a book signing at uh, Waterstones in Telford last weekend. I'm doing uh, some more. I'm going down to Spalding and Lincolnshire and a few other places. Uh, I dress up as Jessica Fletcher, Angela Lansbury, Murder, She Wrote, who did all the book signing, so I get it right. <laughs> but apart from that, nothing else. Uh, where can it's people, great fun. It's where, great fun. I'm loving it. Please uh, please do send our listeners to where they can go to find your book and, uh, and more about you. Okay. Go to my website, briansims.co.uk, B-R-I-A-N-S-I-M-S.co.uk. The video's there. The books are on there. You can order them direct from the publisher there everything's there all about my career you can have a look at it all thank you very much brian and do follow the show on twitter at missed apex f1 find us on facebook by searching for missed apex podcast and consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash missed apex until we see you again guys be brave because wounds heal chicks dig scars and glory that lasts forever this was missed apex Are you a metal man, Brian? Well, one of my very best mates, we went to school together, is Ian Gillan of Deep Purple. Oh, okay. He came down to South Africa um, last time we saw Ian a few years ago, and we went to the Grand West Casino in South Africa, and he invited us for the whole second half of the show on stage with Ron, his wife. And we oh. sat there uh, by the speakers while Ian did Smoke on the Water and it's about 6,000 audience. You've got much better mates than me. My, all my mates are terrible and just boring. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.